if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, the beauty of the gospel is that God has saved us. He's freed us from the power and the penalty of sin. He's put us in Christ, who's now our life. So we've got to together, surrender our lives. Say, our lives are yours, and we're your servants. It's not a radical version of Christianity. This is biblical Christianity. It's what it means to be a follower of Christ. We don't call the shots. He calls the shots. The Radical Together Podcast, with teaching from David Platt. Welcome back to a new episode of the Radical Together podcast. And if you're new to the podcast, you can listen to all the previous episodes at Radical.net or by subscribing on iTunes. Today we begin a new series of messages from David. This four-part series from Philippians chapter 3 is entitled, Don't Waste Your Life. Well, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, I invite you to open with me to Philippians chapter 3. I think the greatest challenge... I faced this morning is looking back over the last month at all the Lord has been teaching me and resisting the temptation just to pour it out all on you at once. So I'm going to do my best not to. Uh, this outline, I'll go ahead and guarantee you we're not even going to get close to finishing today. We're going to dive into this text that is so rich, so potent. I think one of the theme passages in all of Philippians maybe in all the New Testament, about what it means to be a Christ follower. What does it mean to follow Christ? And I want us to dive in and see that this morning. Because this text, I really do, do believe, summarizes a lot of the things the Lord has been teaching me. My time in the Word, my time reading, reflecting. You know, you sit in an apartment in Kazakhstan for too long. You, you have a lot of time to think about things. And I think if I had to sum up the one thing the Lord has been teaching me over and over and over again, is I want my life to count. You have time to reflect and to evaluate when you step away from the busyness of the world that you live in. And you look at it and you say, I don't, I don't want to waste my life. I want my life to count. And then even yesterday when we were on the plane on the way into Birmingham, I'm sitting there holding Caleb asleep in my arms, Heather's asleep on my shoulder. I look at these two faces and I think I want my life to count for him, for her. I think about the family and friends that are waiting for us at the airport. I want my life to count for them. Think about you. I thought about you a lot. Think about this church. I want my life to count for this church. I want my life to count for you. Think about the city that we were in, Caleb City, about 300,000 people a small handful of known believers. The parting gift we got when we left Kazakhstan was a little hat that it's customary for Muslim boys to wear when they go to the mosque. I want my life to count for that city and for the hundreds and thousands of other cities like it. And amidst it all, just to think about the faithfulness of God, his provision every step of the way, maybe superseding everything else, I want my life to count for his glory. I don't want to waste the life that's been entrusted to me. And I'm guessing, I'm guessing that's a truth that rings home across this room. We want our lives to count. 
And so one truth is going to penetrate our time in this text over the next couple or the next three Sundays. We'll see how long we're going to be here. But one truth is going to penetrate it all. And it's this truth. God wants to raise up men and women in his church whose lives count for his glory on the landscape of human history. God longs to, desires to raise up men and women in his church whose lives count for his glory on the landscape of human history. That word count is going to be mentioned three different times in the text we're about to read. This is Paul stepping back and evaluating his life. Paul stepping back and giving us a picture of what it truly means to be a Christ follower. And the the truths that we're going to see unfold in this text, I'm convinced, will penetrate our Christianity to the core. They will shake us to the core because they are deeply profound, life-changing truths. So let's see them unfold. Let's soak in every word. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. It is a safeguard for you. This is kind of funny here in Philippians chapter 3. Paul starts off and says, finally, but he's still got half the book to go. Kind of like preachers do that, you know. So we're going to close out with this. And then like an hour later, you're still there. Well, again, I'm going to try. I know you guys want to go to lunch. I've got a little guy waiting for me at home. So we're going to try to get through this. Look at verse 2. He starts to address a problem in the church. He says, watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ, may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings and becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. What I want us to do is I want us to take Paul's reevaluation here in Philippians 3 and I want us to see his example and look at four characteristics of men and women whose lives have counted for the glory of Christ on the landscape of human history. Four characteristics. The first one is this. If we want our lives to count for his glory, people like this treasure Christ above everything this world has to offer. They treasure Christ above everything this world has to offer. Now, we're not even going to be able to dive into the first few verses in depth in this chapter. But what Paul is doing from the very start is he's 
He's addressing a problem in the church that had arisen because of a group of people called Judaizers. And basically, these were people, Jewish Christians, at least they claimed to be Christians. But their, their practice was to go into to situations where Gentiles were coming to faith in Christ and they would start telling all the Gentiles all the things they needed to do in order to become Christians. Well, if you're going to be circumcised, if you're not a Jew, well, then you need, or if you're going to become a Christian, you're not a Jew, you need to be circumcised. If, if you're a Gentile coming to faith in Christ, well, then you need to start following this Jewish rule or this Jewish regulation or this Jewish practice. You need to start doing these things. And they would pull out their list of things that Gentiles needed to do in order to come to faith in Christ. And as a result, they were hindering the advancement of the gospel throughout the Gentile world because they were, they were putting all these rules and regulations that were masking the, the gospel that is by grace through faith alone, which is what Paul is talking about here. And so Paul uses some pretty fierce terms to describe them. He says, watch out for those dogs. Kind of some irony there because that's what they would refer, Jews would refer to Gentiles as dogs. And so Paul turns it around on him. He says, you guys are the dogs, mutilators of the flesh. That's not a kind term to call someone else. So that's what he does. That's how he describes the Judaizers. And then he comes to verse 4. In the second half of verse 4, he says, If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Now, you've got to catch it. This is a great picture, and you don't get it as much in the English, but in the original language of the New Testament, this is like Greek trash talking here, okay? Paul's talking a little smack here. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reasons, and there's a major emphasis on anyone else. In other words, he's like, if any other man, anybody else, anywhere, thinks he has anything that can match what I've got when it comes to to being favored before God or having righteousness before God, I challenge him to step up to me. So he's calling anybody out. You come up to me, and I guarantee you, I will knock you out of the ballpark with all the things I have in my corner. And what he does is he lists seven different things that could be split up into two main categories. One is things that he had received just by birth, things that he didn't have anything to do with, but some some things that he had been given to him he had received. Second are things that he had achieved, things he had worked for, his achieved righteousness. What I want you to do is read that list with me, and then I want us to think about him in five different groups that he's really emphasizing here. He says, first, circumcised on the eighth day. Second, this is in verse 5, of the people of Israel. Third, of the tribe of Benjamin. Fourth, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Fifth, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. Sixth, as for zeal, persecuting the church. And seven, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. He gives the list. And then after he gives the list, he comes to verse 7. And he said, whatever was to my prophet, which is a reference to all the things he had mentioned just before, all of these things that I've mentioned, I consider them loss for the sake of Christ. So what he does is he gives a list of things. And then he says, all together, they come up to one big loss, one big zero. And so what I want you to see here in Philippians chapter three, verse four and five is a list that scripture gives us of treasures of the wasted life. Wasted life because Paul comes to the end, the Bible tells us they're all a loss, wasted. Now let's think about what they are. First of all, the many treasures of the wasted life. First is family heritage. He talks about his family. I was circumcised on the eighth day. That's something that would only happen if you were in a strong Jewish family. That's when it was customary for them to, to do that as early as possible. So Paul wasn't adopted into the, to this Jewish family later on. From the very beginning, 
He was thick in Jewish heritage, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, not just of the people of Israel. He gets even more specific of the tribe of Benjamin. Now you go back to the Old Testament and you see the tribe of Benjamin was an extremely significant tribe in the people of Israel. It was the tribe of Benjamin when other tribes were were turning away from the Davidic throne. It was the tribe of Benjamin that stayed faithful to David. It was the tribe of Benjamin, did you realize, that gave the nation of Israel its first king. The first king of Israel's name was what? Saul. Anybody know what this guy's name was before he wrote Philippians? Saul. Very possible that he was named after the first king of Israel that came from his tribe. So his family heritage was was strong. He comes to the end of that first part and he says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. You don't get any more Hebrew, any more Jewish than I get. So he had a strong family heritage. Second, social status. Second, treasure of the wasted life, social status. This goes back to the tribe of Benjamin stuff. This is the tribe you look back in the book of Judges and you see how the tribe of Benjamin included the land that surrounded Jerusalem, which had the temple inside it. As a result, the tribe of Benjamin was, was prestigious, maybe even more prestigious than, than a lot of the other tribes. So here Paul was. He's from the tribe where there's kind of an upper echelon mentality. He was at the pinnacle of Jewish social life. Number one, family heritage. Number two, social status. Number three, biblical knowledge. The next thing he says is in regard to the law, a Pharisee. Now, we've got to be careful at this point because... Many of us who've read the New Testament, parts of it, especially in the Gospels, we have a negative impression of Pharisees. We almost think of them as hypocrites, which in many ways they were, and Jesus exposed that. But we've got to realize that in this day, Pharisees were extremely well-respected. When, when you think about people who love the Word and know the Word, that's how Pharisees were viewed. These are, these are guys who know the law, the Word, backwards and forwards. They love it. They meditate on it day and night, just like the Old Testament tells them to do. They got it memorized. They follow it. Their lives reflect the law. Everything was devoted to the law. Paul said, I was a Pharisee. Biblical knowledge had it to the core. Paul knew the Word. He loved the Word. Fourth, religious activity. The next thing Paul says is, as for zeal, persecuting the church, not only was Paul a nominal part of the Jewish religion, the Jewish faith, he was a zealous member of Judaism. He was so zealous that he went out persecuting the church that in Acts chapter 7, when we see the first Christian martyr, the people are laying things at the feet of a man named Saul. He's right there. He was zealous. He went throughout these areas persecuting Christians who had turned against Judaism. He was zealous in his religious activity. The many treasures of the wasted life, family heritage, social status, biblical knowledge, religious activity, and then fifth, a moral lifestyle. A moral lifestyle. Legalistic righteousness, which basically is a term that basically means I follow the rules, do things right. He says, I'm faultless. I am blameless. It's almost like he is challenging them to show an area of his life that is not right where he has not followed the rules and the rituals that he was supposed to follow. So there's the list. The many treasures of the wasted life, family heritage, social status, biblical knowledge, religious activity, and a moral lifestyle. I want you to look at that list with me. I want to ask you a question. What do you see that all five of those things have in common? If you'll notice, every single one of those things are good things. You see that? Family heritage, is that a bad thing to have? Love for your family, respect for your family, pride in your family? Social status could obviously be corrupted, but 
in and of itself, not a bad thing to have. That's a good thing. Biblical knowledge, is that a bad thing to have? No, that's a very good thing to have. Religious activity, zeal, regard to what you believe, that's not a bad thing to have. A moral lifestyle, David, are you saying it's a bad thing to have a moral lifestyle? Absolutely not. All of those things are good things. And that's what we need to see in order to realize, ladies and gentlemen, it was not bad things that were keeping Paul from Jesus. It was good things that were keeping Paul from Jesus. This is huge. Do you catch the gravity of what Paul is saying here? He is telling us that it is possible to love your family and take your family to church and take your kids to church just like your parents took you to church and to have a good reputation in your culture and in your society and the community where you live and to have biblical knowledge, to know the word, to love the word, even to teach the word. On top of that, to not just be involved in church, but to be active in church, zealous in your church activity. And then on top of all that, to be a very good, decent, moral person. It is possible to have all of those things come to the end of your life and it be written across the top of it, wasted. That's what he's saying here. All of those things are treasures of the wasted life. David will be back in just a moment, but first I want to tell you about a new resource launched this month called Radical Soundbites. These brief audio clips are helpful, concise soundbites in which David addresses a specific topic through the lens of Scripture. We hope this resource will encourage you and help you thoughtfully and prayerfully engage others with the truth of God's Word. You can find Radical Soundbites via our social media channels, at Follow Radical on Twitter and the Radical Facebook page. And if you'd like to explore additional resources from the ministry of David Blatt, visit Radical.net. Here's David with the rest of today's message. Now, some of us are thinking, well, if those are treasures of the wasted life, then what what in life counts? I'm glad you asked. Paul comes to the end of this list. He groups them all together and he says they are one loss, one big zero compared to one thing. And the one thing is the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. The many treasures of the wasted life, family heritage, social status, biblical knowledge, religious activity, a moral lifestyle, the only treasure of the life that counts is Christ. The only treasure of the life that counts is Christ, Paul says. Christ is the decisive difference. You look at verse 7 and 8, and you see in the very beginning of these verses, they're parallel. Paul says, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss in verse 7. says almost the exact same thing in verse 8. What is more, I consider everything a loss. Whatever is to my profit, everything. I consider them a loss. And then right in the middle, we see the difference. For the sake of who? For the sake of Christ. And he repeats this over and over and over again. It is redundant all the way through verse 11. He says, I consider it all loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. For whose sake I've lost everything for his sake. It's all rubbish so I can gain Christ. I want Christ. I want his righteousness, he says in verse 9. Verse 10, he says, I want the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. I want to be like him in his death. Over and over again, Paul says that Christ is far greater than all of the good things in this world. 
piled together into one. They don't pale in comparison to his greatness. The only treasure of the life that counts is Christ. So, we need to step back at this point and realize what Paul, what Scripture is teaching us here about what it means to be a Christ follower in this room. To be a Christ follower, according to Philippians chapter 3, means that we, we discover that Jesus Christ is a treasure chest of holy joy. And we take everything and everyone else in our lives and we write over the top of it, loss without him. Everything, everyone, the most cherished family relationships, our reputation, even the good things that religion says we need to do, our morality, all of it. We write one big word across it, capital letters, loss. He even, he even says it's, it's rubbish. I consider them rubbish. This is a very interesting word in the original language of the New Testament. We don't, one of those areas where we don't get the full meaning here because it's, it's actually kind of a vulgar word. In the first couple centuries of the church, when the early church fathers were translating this, they tried to minimize it. It was almost kind of an embarrassing passage because basically what Paul is saying is, I consider all these things as dung. And some of you think I just said dung in a Sunday morning worship service, and I did. That's, that's what he said. I know that's awkward. It's awkward for me. It's awkward for you. But it's literally what this word rubbish means. Excrement, waste. We won't continue, but you've got the picture. A dirty diaper. Okay, all right, all right, you've got I changed my first one last week. Heather had gone, just me and Caleb. He starts laughing. <laughs> Says something up. And anyway, okay. Uh, <laughs> Paul comes to the end. Paul comes to the end and he said, all of those things, one big dirty diaper, all of them rubbish, dung. Don't miss the gravity of this statement, what he is saying here. Because... This is radically different than the kind of Christianity that is being celebrated across our country this morning. It is radically different than the kind of Christianity that is being practiced in lives all across our country this week and sung about this morning. You say, what do you mean, Dave? There are thousands upon thousands of people who this morning have gone to church with their families thinking that their life is going to count because they have brought their kids to church just like their parents did for them. There are multitudes of people who are sitting in seats and pews across our country this morning in nice clothes with nice cars in the parking lot and nice homes waiting for them this afternoon with nice jobs and nice businesses who cannot fathom the fact that it all doesn't matter a bit. It's wasted. There are countless people who are going to Bible study this morning who are listening to the word of God being taught or being preached and it's all wasted. I'm convinced there are countless people who are preaching the word 
and teaching the word today in small groups who think that that counts for something and it's lost, it's wasted. Scores of people who are living high moral lives, who are the most decent, decent of people. And it's all wasted. I'm convinced, based on the authority of the Word of God, that there are people in this room right now this morning who will be surprised and shocked to stand before the Lord one day to give an account for their lives. And we'll hear the words just like Jesus said, or say the words just like Jesus said, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and your name perform many miracles and drive out demons? Lord, did we not go to church? Did we not serve in church? Did we not participate in church? Did we not take our family to church? Did we not live, lead good lives as mom and a dad? Did we not have a good reputation in our community? Even, even knowing the Bible, reading it, studying it, did we not do these things? Did we not live up to the highest standards we could in comparison with the rest of the culture around us? And it will be written across that life, wasted. It doesn't matter. Those are the many treasures of the wasted life. God, help us to get a hold of this. These treasures are subtly deceptive because they mask our true spiritual condition. The question I want to ask every single person in this room this morning, regardless of your age, regardless of whether you are on staff at the Church of Brook Hills, you are a member of the Church of Brook Hills, or you're a guest here, whether you sing in the choir or you serve in the nursery, whether you teach a small group or you attend a small group, whether this is your first time in church or you never miss a Sunday in church, get through all the rubbish. Get through all the things that don't matter. The question is, do you know Christ? Don't let all the other thoughts come in. Well, I've got this and this and this. Well, I prayed a prayer and I signed a card. That's not the question Scripture gives us. Do you know Christ? Do you know him? And is he the treasure chest of holy joy around which everything else in your life revolves so that everything else in this world, even the greatest things in your life, pale in comparison to him? That's biblical Christianity. That's the heart of a Christ follower. Do you know Christ? Somewhere along the way, we have forgotten. And I'm convinced it is one of the most effective, prominent strategies of the adversary. He numbs us and lulls us to sleep with the pleasures of this world and the good things that are around us in this world. And he masks us from seeing this question. And we have forgotten, ladies and gentlemen, that in Christ we have found something worth losing everything for. God, help us to recover this truth. We have found something worth losing everything for. That's what he said in verse 8. Not just the things I've listed. 
I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. Now, is this just, just Paul talking here? No, this is Jesus. This is him saying, if anyone's going to come after me, he must lose everything. Father, mother, brother, sister, take up your cross, take up death and follow me. What a radical statement. Turn with me back to Matthew chapter 13. I want you to see this truth from Jesus' mouth. We have found something worth losing everything for. Look at Matthew chapter 13, uh, verse 44. It's the first, first book in the New Testament, right before Mark and Luke and John. If you need to use your table of contents, please feel free to do that. Look at Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. Jesus said this, two short little parables, short little pictures, but they're so thick. What an incredible picture. Listen to this. The kingdom of heaven, which is the life of the Christ follower, is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all he had. He didn't begrudgingly go sell all he had. Oh no, I found this treasure. Now I have to give up these things. No, he was glad. Get him out of here as soon as possible. I want to sell it all with joy so that he could buy that field. Second picture. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. You might write in the margin of your Bibles right next to that passage, we have found something worth losing everything for. This is a core truth of what it means to be a Christ follower. That's all for today's episode. We hope you'll join us next time as we continue this series in Philippians 3. For more resources from David Platt, including those in other languages, visit Radical.net. And if you'd like to know more about the International Mission Board, visit imb.org. Join us next time for more teaching from David right here on the Radical Together podcast.